Now, we've been looking at the last couple months this incredible section in Ephesians 4, and, and it's really defining morality in a different way than what most people think. I think if I were to go ask most people, what does the Bible teach about morality? I think the most common response would be along the lines of, well, it's about the, the, the sins that we're to avoid. You know, the thou shalt nots. And, and so a good person isn't going to, you know, sleep around or steal or kill or get drunk or whatever else that we might put on that list. But what we continue to see throughout the Bible is that Christianity is not a religion that's based on a set of rules. It's a relationship with God. And it's a relationship that when we have that, it changes us in a different way. See, God isn't primarily concerned by the rules we keep or even the things that we don't do. He's more concerned with our character, with who we are. In a sense, you could say, okay, we're seeking a relationship with God. And, and morality is not the end goal. Morality, change life, is a byproduct. The goal is a relationship with God. And when we have this close relationship with God, then change life is a byproduct of that. It's natural. And it will be defined not necessarily just by the bad things we don't do, but even more by the righteousness that we have, the, the character of what we do and who we are. And through this, Paul, we've been looking at this illustration of taking off clothing because that's the illustration that Paul uses. In the, in the middle of chapter 4, he talks about that in a sense our morality was like clothing that we wear. And uh, in the, fall, the wardrobe of a follower of Christ should be distinctively different than the clothing of a non-believer. He says in verse 22 of chapter 4, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. There's a lifestyle that we used to wear that used to define us before we were followers of Christ and we're to take that off and discard it like an old set of clothing. And instead we're to put something new on, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. We should wear new clothing that looks distinctively different. But let me even draw out something here, and, and from that even to springboard to a different illustration. See, what does it call us to do? To put on new self, and what should that look like? Created after the likeness of God. That our life should look like God. That we should reflect his image in a sense. This is an idea that this taught a few verses later in chapter, one, or chapter 5, verse 1. He calls us to be, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. What are we to look like? We're to imitate God. Specifically, we're to imitate Christ. We're to look like him. We're to have his image. In a sense, as I thought about this, I thought one ex example of this would be to think about a, a seal that you put wax and, and you have this you know, seal and they'll say, okay, here's a seal and it's a sign of the cross. And, and the idea of a seal is it should be something that stamps into wax and it leaves an image so that you see a reflection of the image of that which has been pressed into. And that's what God has called us to. We are called to reflect his likeness. But how does that happen? How are we changed in this way? How, how can we go through this process so, so that we become people who reflect God in our lives? What do we do to pursue this? And what is our responsibility? What is God's role in the whole process? And in this whole thing, that's where Paul wraps it up. He takes this whole concept and he said, okay, this is how you do it. This is how, this is how we pursue it. So let's dive into this passage. In, in verse 15, we saw a moment ago, he calls us to look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise. And when it talks about walking, it's talking about how we live everyday life, the steps that we take day through day through life. And it calls us to live carefully, uh, guided by wisdom. 
And, and it's building actually on the verses that were right before this. Last week we looked at verses 11 through 14 and it talked about the world as being defined by darkness. And it's building on that and saying, okay, we should look carefully how we walk. Why? Because we live in this world that's defined by darkness. And, and if we're not careful, we're going to take steps that are unwise, that are destructive. We need to recognize that we've got to be careful. And not only that, we live in, as we're going to see in verse 16, an evil world where there's all kinds of dangers. Now, even as we talk about this picture that he uses, walk carefully, let's take that next step further. Let's, let's illustrate it in some, a picture we can all relate. Let's say you're preparing something in your kitchen, you've got bare feet on, and, and uh, you accidentally knock over a, a, some kind of glass container. The glass hits the floor and it's shattered and the glass scatters amongst the floor. Now, what do you do? Do you just walk over and just kind of start picking it up or, uh, you know, just, you know, run, to, you know, you know, run across the floor to you know, finding the broom? No, you recognize that, that there's glass everywhere. You walk carefully. You walk wisely. You know there's danger. And you make sure that your next step is a smart step, a wise step, that understands the danger and that is careful to avoid it. Uh, you know, a fool would do, what would a fool? You know, a fool just st- runs across the ground, you know, just, hey, I need to get, this, get the, the broom, and you run across, and, and, and next thing you know, your fleet, feet are bleeding, and it's like, okay, what happened? You did this to yourself. You're gonna pay a price. You gotta be careful. You gotta walk wisely. In fact, there's nothing worse than hurting yourself. You, you know, we can all relate to that. You know, times that you do something, you know it's your fault. I mean, every, you can, we can all relate. You know, you're going through the living room and you're maybe looking down at the phone, you're not paying attention, and suddenly, boom, you, you, know, you hit your toe on a table. And it's, man, that hurts. You've got major stub your toe, and next, you know, you're jumping up and down, and you want to get angry. It's like, who, who you know, I want to yell at somebody, but who do you yell at? It's like, okay, well, it's your toe. You took the step. Well, the table's there. It's, you know, I want to yell at my wife. Well, it's been there for 15 years. I mean, can I, you know, how can I be mad at her? And, and the thing is, is that, I'm, I'm angry, but I know that I did it to myself. Why? Because I wasn't walking carefully. Or if I walk over the glass, I did it to myself because I wasn't walking wisely. Now, you might even have a young child that doesn't understand that. A young child, you know, they see it and they say, oh, let me help, and they want to run right over and help. And you say, well, wait, 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 be patient, wait, stay back. And why? Because they don't understand. You, you recognize that a young child lacks the wisdom to understand the threat. Now, as adults, we should think we should understand that. And Paul's saying, no, we should no longer be toddlers. We need to understand that in this world of darkness and brokenness, there's brokenness on the floor over that can easily cut into our soul. So walk carefully, walk wisely. And that starts by understanding the truth. So look at again at verse 15 through 17. Verse 15 starts, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And it continues, making the best use of time because the days are evil. So we need to start by recognizing the days are evil. As he said a few verses earlier, it's not only evil, but we live in this darkness. And in a sense, he's saying, realize that we live in a dangerous world where there's glass on the floor, where there's all kinds of things that can do great damage to our soul. And then he continues in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And I think what he's saying here is that in the midst of this, we need to remember that there is a will of God in your life, that you were created by God and he's given you a design and he's given you a purpose and a meaning in life. There's a plan. You know, sometimes we can look at the world around us and, and it seems to be so lost and going in so many directions and, 
And, and we can almost get frustrated by the meaninglessness and the rudderlessness of the world around us. And, and we can be surprised, but I shouldn't be surprised. Because when you look at the world around us, what is the kind of the defining value system of, of belief? Many in the world around us believe that we're little more than a product of evolution. You know, we're just, as some people say, lucky slime. You know, we're amoebas that just through time and chance somehow evolved to what we are. But what is life then? There's no inherent meaning in life. We're just the product of chance. There's no greater purpose. There's no greater meaning. There's no design. And so ultimately, if there's no design, that means, well, we look at the teaching of the Bible, and, and you know, whatever the Bible says, it's, it doesn't really any, mean anything to us. It's the wisdom of ages. Why should we study that? No, if something is true, that means that there has to be truth outside of us. And, and, the, and the evolutionary perspective, there is nothing outside of us. So there is no absolute truth. So according to the values of our world, you know, basically, whatever our opinion is, whatever our desires are, whatever our feelings are, those reign supreme. You could just change anything about yourself based on what you feel because there is no purpose or design. But Paul reminds us, no, that's the world's thinking. It's empty. It's foolish. It's not only empty because it's based on a lie, but it's foolish in the sense that it's dangerous. It's destructive. It's like a glass that's co- or a floor that's covered with, with broken glass. What is wisdom? Wisdom is remembering that we are created by God. And he's created not only us, he's created the world and he's given it design and he's given us his word to try to understand what that design is. And that if you're a follower of Christ, you have a relationship with God and we're told that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. We're co-heirs with Christ, that we have the promise of eternity with him. As a result, your life has eternal purpose, eternal significance. He's reminding us that there's purpose in life. Not only is there purpose, but there is design so that God, you know, hasn't just said, okay, just figure it out. No, there is a design, and the more that we live life that's in accord with God's design and and the world that's set up according to his design, the more aligned with that, the better it's going to work. See, but there are a lot of people who say, I don't believe in that. Well, if you don't like God's design or if you don't believe in God's design, that doesn't make it any less true. It doesn't make God's word any less true. And likewise, not believing or not liking his design doesn't make the consequences any less painful for ignoring that. So again, let's go back to the illustration. If you have broken glass on the floor, if you say, I don't believe there's broken glass, or I don't think that's going to hurt me, if you walk barefoot over the broken glass, it's going to do just as much damage as if you understood it. So the key is here when he says, understand what the will of God is. Do you know that God loves you? Do you know he's got a purpose and a plan for your life? He's not only your creator, but he's designer. And what that means is that means that, that, you know, that if you really believe that, then you're going to trust what he says as what's best. In a sense, if I really have confidence with God, I can say, well, what God tells me to do is what I would choose to do if I knew as much as what God does. See, the question we should really ask if it says, know what the will of God is, I should be asking through life, what does God want? You know, we're hearing today, what does God want me to do? But the reality is that's not what we usually ask. The question we usually ask is, what do I want? What do I feel like doing? What feels good at the moment? But when we use that as the way that we make decisions, what we're doing is we're walking in darkness. We're walking over the broken glass, and, and the life is, you know, the result is going to be terrible. But on the other hand, when we ask, what does God want? 
What we're doing is we're saying, I believe that God is good. We just sang that song a little bit ago, God is good. Do you understand that if we really believe that, that he's good, that he's good, that he's never going to let me go, that what he tells me is an expression of his goodness and his love and his knowledge, and therefore I'm going to do the things that he calls me to do. Again, we understand this in part. You know, if you, as a parent, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you have, we have a bunch of young children here. You know, you think about with your, your kids. Sometimes you go to your kids and you say, well, here's what you need to do. And if they're preschool or especially, um, do they always, they always obey you? When you tell your kids, here's, here's what I want you to do, do they say, yes, you know, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, and they go and do it all the, all, suddenly all the time? Any, anybody have that? Anybody raises their hands? I want you to teach the next parenting class because that's the, I, I, I haven't figured that out with my kids yet. No, that's not what happens. What happens is I don't feel like doing it. Or they will argue back, well, why? I need an explanation why. And there are some times that I, 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 I can't really explain it. All I can say is, trust me, I, I'm, as your dad, I know more than you do. I know things that, and I know that this is the right decision, and I'm telling you that you have to trust me, and if you trust me that this is what's in your best interest, then, then things will go well for you. And the more that we align ourselves with, with that, the more we start to understand it. And that's exactly what God is calling us to. He is the loving Father, the perfect Father. He wants us to know that he's good, know his will, walk in that. It's not only knowing it, but then act on that. Take steps that reflect that. Look at how specifically he calls us to live out that understanding. Verse 15, live carefully then, or look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. He says, a mark of someone who understands this is we're going to make the best use of our time. Literally, it could be translated, buying back the time. We recognize that we live in a world where there's, there's evil around us, and, and we can become captive to the culture, and we have to be very intentional about the way that we use our time. Now, here's an important point I think that we can sometimes miss. When we look at what he's saying here, it's teaching us something that, that's important for us to realize. See, oftentimes when we think of obeying God's will and here's the right, here's the wrong, and I don't want to do the wrong, and then I'm good. And we see foolishness primarily as doing wrong things. And what we need to realize is that clearly that is foolish living, but but, but what this is teaching is that foolish living is not only in choosing wrong things or bad things, but it's also in failing to choose the right things or the best things. It isn't just the bad things or evil things that we do that are foolish, but also the empty things. And in reality, in our own life, if we look at it, it's oftentimes the empty things that Satan uses us to, to distract us from God. It's, when we think about it, it's usually the things, that, the things that keep us from acting wisely aren't bad, but they're just empty and worthless. They aren't things that are bad in and of themselves, but if we get too involved in those, what happens is suddenly we... You know, we're taken away from what's right. So, for example, think about media. How much time do we spend with media? How much time do we spend watching TV? How much time do you spend on the Internet and Facebook? Or, or how much time do you spend on social media? And then we're constantly taking up our phone and we're constantly distracted by that. It's not that those things are bad. You see, but if they're taking up all your mind, if you're spending, how much time are you spending Remember that God's call upon your life isn't just to walk away from sinful things, but to redeem the time. It's not only defined by the wrong things that we don't do, but by the righteousness that we do. See, the question is not just, you know, are we doing bad things, but are we using our time wisely? 
to redeem it. See, oftentimes, again, what Satan does is not distracting me by things. He doesn't start by saying, here's something bad, here's something evil. But what he does is says, here's worthless. And I spend time doing things that are worthless, and as I spend more time doing worthless, I spend less time pursuing him. And next thing you know, I'm falling into something that's, that's harmful. In fact, just the verse before this, in verse 14, he talks about the same idea. He says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He's basically saying, too often, we're just sleepwalking spiritually. We're in the middle of the darkness. We live in this world where the days are evil, and we don't realize the danger that surrounds us. And because we don't realize that, we're not intentional about the way that we live. He says, well, you're going to get in trouble. And he says, no, wake up, arise from the dead, live wisely, walk carefully. And the way we do that is walking under the influence. You say, what is that? Well, we've all heard of driving under the influence. Do you? I, that's a bad thing. You don't want to do that. And, but here, what's it walking under the influence? Well, let's go back to verse 17. He says, be, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And how do we live that way? Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, the overarching call is to walk wisely. And it requires a couple distinct actions. First, we have to understand the circumstances. We have to be wise enough to be able to see the glass on the floor, wise enough to be able to see the truth. But I also need to then translate that into action. You see, I know many people that, many Christians that would say, okay, I know that's wrong. I know, basically, I know there's glass on the floor. And then they just go tramping right across the glass, continue to make those choices. And we need to realize that knowing something doesn't necessarily, that's not all we need. We need to then translate it into wise action. Um, and that's often the challenge we face. You know, some people say that there's, a, in, there's a, a, a gap in our knowledge, an 18-inch gap between our head and our heart. You know, I can know something in my head, but it never translates 18 inches down to my heart. And God wants to close that gap so that what I know is translated in my heart and expresses itself through action. And how do we do that? Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So we need to be filled with the Spirit. So what is that? And we talk about that, sometimes we sing about it in our songs. We talk about, you know, Spirit, Spirit come and fill us. And, but what is that? It's an issue, there's a lot of confusion. Now, we'll start by saying as introductory, the Bible teaches that if you are a follower of Christ, then, then when you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you. He's, he's actually within us and, and dwelling in us, and, and we have his presence at all times. And throughout the Ephesians, he's been talking about this. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He says that we must not grieve the Spirit. In two, chapter 2, we have access to the Father through the Spirit. That, that the Bible, in, in 3.15, that God reveals truth to us by the Spirit. And so we read all that. We have the Spirit, but yet now it comes and says we need to be filled. What does that mean? In a sense, it means that it's possible that we have the Holy Spirit and yet still to live as people who are empty. We have it, but then we live as if it's not a reality in our life. And so we need to pursue that reality. Now, what's that mean? We use that terms. And here, Paul takes a surprising term. Turn. See, a lot of times we say, I don't understand this. And what he does is he says, well, let me try to, to explain it by comparing it or contrasting it to something you do understand. And he contrasts it with getting drunk. All right. Now, we... We may not know a lot about being filled with the Spirit, but we all know about getting drunk, for most of us. And, uh, you know, think about what's involved in getting drunk. We sit down and bring something into our body 
so that increasingly it begins to influence our behavior, and over time, it even controls our behavior. And think about how it controls your behavior. It generally brings out the worst in your character. I mean, how many of you can remember a time when we say, okay, I was drunk, and that's when I did something really wise. You know, I mean, I was drunk, and that's when I did my best decisions are made when I'm drunk. Anybody can share that story? You know, we call, you know, many of us could share stories, and it's not the wise. It's like, oh, man, I wish I could forget that. It's, this is the unwise. This is, you know, the ones that I regret. And we need to realize that he says, we understand how drunkenness works. And Paul's saying, okay, but instead of that, it's the opposite. In one sense, what we're doing is, like drunkenness, we're sitting down and bringing something into us that influences us. And in the same way we bring that influence, we take the Holy Spirit. So when we, when we drink from his word, when we spend time with him in prayer, when we let him influence us through worship and through community, and, and, and the more that we bring him into our life, the more he influences our behavior. But instead of losing control, like drunkenness does, we now are given self-control. And not only that, but when we think of drunkenness, there are signs of drunkenness. You can generally tell if somebody's drunk. There's, there's evidences of that. And likewise, he says, okay, being filled with the Spirit, there's evidences. But the evidences are what Galatians talks about, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, and patience, and, and these beautiful things. Now, in the middle of this, though, we've got to say, okay, how do we do this? What does this mean? Is it just something that we tried? Because the core idea is that really it's not religion, it's not rules, it's not performance. So how, how do we do this? What is, in a sense, my role and what is God's role? Because there's a role that we have, and, but there's a balance in this. See, there are some people look at this and they say, well, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, it's just passive. I've heard some people teach on it. It's like, well, we ask for the Holy Spirit and then we just sit like it's hit, being hit by lightning and suddenly the Holy Spirit comes upon you and then boom and... And so there's some people that, that understand that. But there are others that will say, well, no, it's something that you're responsible for. It's your effort. And so there are books, you know, here's five steps to be filled with the Spirit, five things you need to do, or whatever it would be. Now let's look at the text. It shows us that both of those ideas are wrong. See, on the one hand, if it were really passive, there wouldn't be a command. This is a command. He's saying, be filled with the Spirit. This is something that you need to pursue. It's something that you need to do. So it's something that we have some responsibility, but on the other hand, if it were completely in our control, then, there, then the command would be, fill yourself with the Spirit. So there's a command, but a passivity. Do something, be filled, let Him fill us. And so there's this incredible balance. There's this role that we have, but yet there's a passivity that we have in the midst of it. We have a role. We must come to God in humility and dependence and put, uh, put ourselves in this place where he can fill us. Let me try to even illustrate how this works. At the beginning of the message, I, we talked about how this whole passage is calling us to put on the image of Christ, to look like Christ. And so we use the illustration of the idea of a, of a, a seal. And what do we want? We want to realize that God wants to press into our life in such a way so that we reflect his image. We bear his seal. Now, I'm going to try to illustrate this, and because it's kind of small, and all, we're going to actually put this on a screen and hope this works so that you can see it. Um, you know, here what I have is, is I have, you know, just this lump of disfigured wax. And, um, and it's a picture in a sense of how we come to God. He loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to keep us that way. He wants to change us. He wants us to be put on the image of Christ. 
He wants to change us so that we bear his seal. Now, the thing is that I do have here this, uh, you know, this, this is the seal that we had here. And now the thing is, is, is that I can say, okay, what am I going to do? If I just put this in this wax, it's not working. And, and in fact, I could press really hard. And what I'm going to probably do is it's not only going to not take the seal, I'm going to probably crack it. Because the fact of the matter is, is that wax, when it's hardened, is kind of brittle. It's, it's, you know, it's not malleable at all. Now, so what is God calling us to do here? Now, let's take throughout the Bible when it talks about the Holy Spirit. It often talks about the Holy Spirit in terms of a flame, of the fire of the Holy Spirit. In a sense of say, okay, I take some wax here. And, and what God calls us to do is to say, okay, what I need to do is I need to come to the fire of the Spirit. I need, in a sense, put myself under his flame. And what happens is when I put myself under his flame, it takes this wax that was hard and that was brittle and that, that was not malleable at all, and suddenly it begins to melt it. It begins to melt and it begins to, to, shape, you know, to, to totally change the nature of what was, what was hard and brittle. And, um, and what we need to do is we recognize that in this picture, you know, I'm coming to God. And it's not, okay, well, here's what I need to do. It's, it's I need to, God, how do I invite your flame into my life? How do I come and how do I put myself in a place where, where the things that you teach, where the things, you know, that I'm letting you kind of spill into me and shape me and melt me and, and take my heart that was, or heart that was hard and, and, and brittle, and how do, you, how do I make it so that you make me now soft? And that's what the Holy Spirit does is he has this way to do this. It has this way of saying, you know, you know I'm, I'm gonna, on my own, I'm going to try to force it. What isn't going to work or or I can pursue God's word. I can pursue and focus on bringing his spirit into my life on this daily basis. And then what happens is that he takes the same, the same stamp and beforehand it was brittle and it was hardened. And now you put the stamp and, and I don't need to, you know, I, in fact, it may be too soft here. I, you know, I just touch it. I put it too much there. I just touch it and suddenly you probably can't see this real well, but you see this, the cross there. You see, you see the effect, the image that is there. It's not something that I have to do. It's something I bring his spirit in, and then by gentleness, he changes me. Now, but even in this command, if I continue to say it, it's not only that we're called to be filled with the spirit, but literally the tense is be continuously filled with the spirit. Uh, it's not a one-time deal. It's something that we have to pursue in our life. It's not like, okay, God, I came to church. I filled with the spirit. I had that experience. And No, we're continually being filled with the spirit. Now, even using that image, being filled, okay, we're this bucket, we leak. And so I can be filled, but I'm constantly leaking. I need to come back again. Going back to the image of the wax. Wax, if, I've got to bring it to the flame, and it softens. But you know what? If I, if I have this wax away from the flame for a period of time, it's going to harden again. It's going to become brittle again. And we need to realize that in the same way, we need to come to the Spirit on a regular basis. We need to constantly let him soften us so that he can shape us to his image. But again, what is our role? How do we do that? What, is the, what do we need to do in moving toward the flame of the Spirit? There's something we do that empowers him. How do we put ourselves in this place where we're close to the flame, where we're in these places where he's pouring out his Spirit? See, now, again, I know what it is to get drunk. That's easy. This one's a little more difficult. We can't fill ourselves, but what we can do is put ourselves in places where he is pouring himself out. We can put himself where his, where in places where his flame is alive. And what are some of the things? And here's, we're going to wrap up, and these are going to go pretty briefly, but we see it right here in this passage. 
Two of them, the first two are implied. They're implied in everything that he said up till now. The first one is, how do we do this? We spend time in God's word. In fact, if you go to verse 17, look what it says again. It calls us to seek to understand what the will of the Lord is. Go back to verse 10. It calls us to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. How do we do this? So a lot of times, even when people say, well, what's the will of God? I want to know the will of God. If I do a class in the will of God, people are thinking, oh, well, I've got a big decision. I want to know whether to take this job or that job. You know, if I'm single, who do I marry? You know, should I sell, my, sell the house? Or, that's what people are often thinking. I want you to say, when the Bible talks about knowing the will of God, 98% of God's will is really straightforward. It's laid out for us. We don't have to take a class to figure it out. It's in his word. The fact is, when we talk about walking wisely, most of the things day by day are really clearly laid out for us in his word. And if we know God's word, we're going to know how to make the vast majority of decisions that we have to make in everyday life. Now, how about the big decisions? I promise you, if you look at God's word and rely upon him in the daily stuff, when it comes to the big decisions, that will get a whole lot easier. So it starts with spending time in God's word. Now, a passage that even builds on this, there's another parallel passage. It's really close to what we have here in Ephesians 5. In Colossians 3, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, we're going to see in a moment, in verses 19 through 21 of Ephesians, it says these same things about admonishing each other and singing and, and thankfulness. All the same thing. But there it's being filled with the Spirit and then... Here it's, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and then. Now, when you look at this in Scripture and Scripture, what's it saying? This is pretty close to that. You want to know how to have the Spirit fill you? It starts by letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It starts by coming to God's word. It's recognizing that this is God's word to you. This is God, dwell with him, his presence, when his wisdom the second thing is also implied here, and that's that we come to him not only in his word, but in prayer. We connect with God in prayer. We spend time with him. We share our hearts. In a sense, we're saying, this is my desire. This is what I thought. This is my, and we come to him and we share it with him. We open ourselves up and we let him speak back to us. In a sense, that's getting close to the flame, letting, the, letting uh, his flame soften the wax of our heart. In fact, there's a great passage in, in, in Acts that we say, how do we know what's filling, being filled with the Spirit is? In Acts 4, you had a group of Christians who prayed, and immediately after they prayed, they were filled with the Spirit. So prayer led to being filled with the Spirit. Acts 4, when they had prayed, the, in the, uh, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word in, in, of God with boldness. Prayer led to the filling of the Spirit. That's one of the things we can do. We know how to do that. But he doesn't stop there. He gives us four more things. And these are all ways that he says being filled with the Spirit. And these are things that we can do. Look at verse 19. It says, address one another uh, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He's calling us to have fellowship that's centered on spiritual conversation. Now, when he says address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to become like a musical church where we sing to each other. You know, where we, you know, where we say, Joseph, how are you doing today? You know, just, no, that's not what he's calling us to. It's, um, you know, when you, if you go to a musical, that's not the idea. It's not a living musical. What it's saying is that we're called to relate to each other on spiritual truths. See, remember this whole thing is that what marks us in our Christian life shouldn't just be the things that we take out, the bad things we don't do, it's the righteousness we do. 
And what happens a lot of times in Christian fellowship, you know what happens? Our small group got together. We had some great fellowship. Well, what did you do? Well, well, our Christian fellowship is marked by what we didn't do. We didn't drink. We didn't, you know, we didn't, uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't cuss. We didn't tell bad jokes. We didn't. No, Christian fellowship should be marked not by the things that we take out, but by the things we put in. And that's what it's saying, is that we need to, not that we talk about nothing but the Bible, but, but our relationships with each other should include time that we say, hey, how's God working in your life? What God's doing? Here, let me show you something that God's teaching me. I heard this great worship song today. You know, that's what we should be sharing with each other. That's the value of community groups. It's so important to have that. And so are you doing that? Are you pursuing those things? And if you don't have that, let me encourage you this fall to pursue a community group because that's where it will help you discover that. It's vital in our Christian life. Another thing he calls us to do is to have a mindset of worship. Look at verse 16 again. It calls us to be singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. Now, worship is real important. Worship changes our perspective. Now, here's what we need to realize. This command, I think, is a lot easier for us to keep, even for the people of his day. Why? Because for most history, you couldn't turn on a worship song on the radio or your iPhone, or you just couldn't plug it in. And so for most history, when he's speaking to people that were in Ephesus at that day, it's like, oh, you remember the Sabbath? You went and you sang that song. Try to remember that song through the week. For us, this is a whole lot easier. It's not only trying to remember what we sang throughout the week. It's, hey, have time and worship. Have time where you play worship music. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but a lot of times I can come out Sunday afternoon and there's a worship song that just runs through my mind throughout the day because I sang it. Well, if I'm not listening to anything throughout the week, that's not happening throughout the rest of the week. I need to take that time to say, I'm putting these things good, good things in. I'm, I'm, I'm intentionally trying to include worship and in what I try to do throughout the week so that that's part of what I'm listening to because I want to try to, to, to nurture this mindset of worship in my heart. Not only that, but he also calls us to nurture a spirit of thanksgiving. Look at verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he talked about the importance of thanksgiving earlier. And it is vital. In fact, when we looked at this back a couple weeks ago, we saw you go back to Genesis chapter 3, and the first temptation was rooted in this, this lie that God's not good. God hasn't given you everything that's good. God's holding something back from you. And because I'm not thankful for what I have, therefore I go outside of God's provision to be able to find what I think I need. So if I have a spirit of thanksgiving, I realize that God is good, that I, that I see the things that he's given me. I'm focused on what his blessings are, not the things that I don't have. And if we nurture the spirit of, of thanksgiving, it not only draws our heart towards God, it helps us to see his goodness, but it helps protect us from the temptations of, of all the things that we don't have, the lies of Satan. And lastly, he calls us to humbly serve one another. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Literally, what this is say, talking about is when it says submit to one another, it's saying submit your agenda. You know, submit, you know, basically when you go through life, just don't think about what you want, how you can get, you know, use other people to get what you want. Submit your agenda so you're saying, how do I serve you? It's what Philippians 2 talks about when it says that we should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who existed in very nature of God, who deserved to be worshipped, made himself nothing, taking the nature of the servant. He died for us on the cross. And, and he's saying we should have that same heart, that same attitude. 
I love even with the youth a couple weeks ago. They got up and they shared the love your neighbor and they shared how they were involved in, in the service projects and how just serving, boy, God met them there when they were serving other people because that's one of the ways that we get drawn towards the Holy Spirit. My friends, when we see this, we see God's calling us to a different kind of life, to not wear the wardrobe of the world, but to be distinctively different, to be people who, who literally have the stamp of Christ upon us. Now, you might be here and you might be like, man, I'm so far away. And, and you know, I just, even this past week, I talked to someone who just has ma- had a major, major collapse recently and, and just talking to him about what happened and some big mistakes. And, and he said, you know, I just stopped trying, meaning I stopped trying to spend time with God. I stopped, basically, I stopped going towards the flame. And basically, because he stopped doing that, his heart became brittle and suddenly he was set up to, to walk over a bunch of glass. My friends, we need to realize this is vital. And if you're here and if that's your story, you know, I want you to realize that even today God comes back and he says, I, I'm not going to beat you up for it. I'm not going to, no, I'm inviting you to come back and to surrender and say, this is what you need. You're more aware of it. Don't stay away from me because of where you've wandered away. Here are the invitation to come. Why? Because he offers grace and he offers forgiveness because our relationship with him was never based on what we did. It was based on our acceptance of grace and what he has done for us. And if you're here today and you're struggling, and how do I do this, and how do I live the life that God has called me to to live, it's not about trying harder. It's not about performing. It's not about rule-keeping. It's not about somehow stamping this and trying. No. It's about saying what I need to do is put myself where the Holy Spirit is is being poured out. I need to, to... to move toward the flame and kind of just get my heart where that flame is because that's what's going to soften my heart. That's what's going to take what I felt like was my effort and where I failed and just said, suddenly, no, God softens my heart and suddenly it's natural. He just puts a soft imprint on us and suddenly I'm shaped into his image. Won't you seek him in that way today? I hope that this week all of us step out and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do this week to pursue him in that way to a new dynamic in this coming week.